Chapter 1. Learning to Walk I'll begin where we all begin, where I grew up. Growing up, there was a great deal of discussion in my home regarding what it is to be saved. The word saved was Christian speak for not going to hell when you die. But you probably knew that already if you live anywhere that has been touched by evangelical Christian thinking. The people in my life spent tremendous amounts of energy trying to determine who was saved and who was not. The challenge was to try to figure out if the person at the center of the discussion believed what we understood to be the true doctrines that made you a true Christian, which in our thinking was the only way to be forgiven by God for your sins. As children, we pretty much accept our experience as a source of truth. So this question of who was and was not saved was tremendously confusing. I remember my first encounter with Mormons. I don't think I'd ever met such nice people before. I found it difficult to believe my friend Joe in first grade was going to hell because he was the kindest person I had ever met, even to this day. However, some of the really mean people I knew at church were apparently saved because they went to our church and believed the right thing. I was always told that God had made the rules and put them in the Bible. My candy-obsessed kid brain perceived that no one could be as nice as Jesus, and if you didn't believe in Jesus the way we did, you weren't forgiven for your sins and therefore weren't saved. No matter how much peace and joy and happiness you had in this life, you would pay for it big time later on. It seemed that being saved required us to sacrifice this life and this earth and most things that were fun for the sake of the afterlife where we would be ushered through some pearly gates and go to church for the rest of eternity. I don't mean to critique those ideas here as much as to simply state that this programming was my takeaway from my childhood theological experience and it was all very confusing. If I sound angry about it, well, I am. Sometimes I have conversations with friends that revolve around that same inner programming, like the one I had recently with a friend of mine in Rwanda. We were taking a break from work, and he said to me in this accent in English, Hey, Seth, do you know this guy, Enrique, who plays the music and lives in America now? He was speaking about a mutual friend who had moved to the USA to go to school and pursue a music career. Yeah, I responded. He has the dreadlocks now, he said somewhat suspiciously. Yeah, he he does. Some of these guys here, he said, we think he's maybe not saved. I smiled and shook my head, eyes cast to the ground. Apparently, this musician, who had decided to get dreadlocks, was in danger of paying for the dreads by spending eternity in hell. I'm quite sure that when he was getting his dreadlocks, he wasn't thinking about this idea. He was more likely humming Three Little Birds by Bob Marley, and if you had asked him about the things he needed to be saved from in that moment, what would he have said? When it comes to salvation, though, your average American needs to be saved from a few things more concerning than hairstyles. Our divorce rate makes marriage look like a roll of the dice. The numbers regarding financial debt are staggering, along with crime, poverty, hunger, and addiction not to mention boatloads of anxiety that manifest in corporate greed, abuse, and lives spent neglecting relationships in the hope of making it. It is not a stretch to say that we need someone to throw us a lifeline, and the numbers are no different inside the Christian church than they are outside of it. Books like this one exist because we feel the need to be saved so badly. While many Christians still adopt a perspective that to be saved is to end up in the right place after we die, to a growing number of people, it is no longer sufficient to point to a sacred text and claim that that text requires us to think more about the afterlife or pleasing a God than we do about the state of happiness or the lack thereof in our present lives. It is no longer acceptable to have to forsake hope for this life and hopes for the next. The gap between the pain we experience in the world and the things we claim to be liberating truths has grown too large. These beliefs that we are told are true are supposed to transform this world and this life here and now and I think that some part of us all knows it somewhere, deep inside. For our purposes, we are going to mainly deal with pornography addiction, both outside and inside of the Christian church, where it has been described to me not as a crisis, but as the crisis of the modern era. A recent study indicates that 50% of men, including Christian pastors, use internet pornography on a regular basis, or could be described as addicted. Strikingly, those who considered themselves fundamentalist Christians were 91% more likely to use porn than the median. 
For a group of people who claim to have a God-given truth that will set us free, there seems to be a significant gap between believing this truth and experiencing actual freedom. Or put another way, there's a huge difference between knowing this path and walking it, and that difference lies in our subconscious. This might be the most concise and authentic way to define addiction, unconscious suffering. For most of the suffering we experience is actually underneath what we experience on the surface. There's a Latin phrase to describe this, ordo salutis. Translated, it means order of salvation, an ordered system we create in the hopes of taming our beliefs and ourselves. This world has built one ordo salutis after another, whether it be religious belief systems that teach us to pacify a God created in a particular image, or economic and cultural systems that sell us just another product, lifestyle, or dream to fulfill our unconscious suffering. The ordo salutis saves us from our pain. However, the problem an ordo salutis presents is that control is not healing. Control, while giving us temporary relief from the symptoms of our pain, forces us to keep the pain with us, inside of our bodies. Like a vault with too much contained inside, our pain will always find a way out. Our bodies begin to leak pain over time. Anxiety, depression, anger, rage, and addictions of all types are leakages. This overt expression of pain that exists at covert levels inside of us requires treatment. And so the ordo salutis takes hold and we begin to medicate the pain. Pick your drug. It can be anything. We all know people who medicate on quote-unquote good things or most socially acceptable things like religion and work. And we all probably know people who head the other way into some dark abyss of the quote-unquote vices if we haven't gone there ourselves. The effect is the same. We carry the pain with us still, masking the pain and controlling it instead of experiencing it and healing it. Therefore, when we are presented with one of these orders of salvation, obedience to these systems end up accomplishing something not that different from the addiction. We trade one prison for another and attempt to label our new prison as a place where we are free.